This is a Bloody Vegans production. Hello, my name is Jim. This is my podcast, The Bloody Vegans. You're very welcome to it. Each week, I'll be travelling ever deeper into the world of veganism, discovering along the way a multitude of viewpoints from the political and ethical to the practical. I'll be doing this through a series of conversations, each aiming to further illuminate my understanding, and hopefully yours, of all things plant-centric. And this week is no different. I'm going to be chatting with Anik Island, who's the co-founder of um, a business called Immaculate Vegan. It's uh, an e-commerce platform that's designed to put all of the best uh, ethical, sustainable, vegan fashion uh, in front of all of you wonderful vegan folks and even some non-vegan folks um, with kind of alternatives to leather, lots of innovation in that space, but pineapple leather, apple leather, handbags and uh, shoes and all kinds of wonderful things um, through to you know clothing that's not got any wool in it or silks and these kind of things. And what is fantastic, I think, about Immaculate Vegan is that they're obviously fashion-focused, but they're really not fast fashion focused it's um annex got a real mission to make fashion she she didn't say this i'm saying this but it's almost about making fashion slow again if you like um there's a big focus on how everything is produced from the beginning through to the end um what materials are used obviously making sure that they're vegan um but also making sure that they're kind of ethically produced from the point of view of is labor paid for uh, in, a, in a fair way, are working conditions along um, factory uh, lines uh, fair and equitable for those um, on those production lines. There's all kinds of thought that goes into the products and the businesses that Immaculate Vegan choose to partner with. Um, Annex going to explain it all far, far more than me, but it, it really did open my eyes to... Um, to the clothing industry a little bit further. I know for those of you who who listen regularly, um, I had a conversation with Erica from the Vegan Society, marketing manager there. Um, And we talked about uh, the vegan trademark. And I had a bit of a misconception. I call it misconception now. uh, Before I spoke to Erica, I probably thought it it was a fact that the vegan trademark maybe had been misused by some companies who were making ultimately like a, you know, a, a, uh, polyurethane plastic, PVC handbag, slapping a vegan logo on it and calling it good and saying, look, look how wonderful we are. Um, and uh, Eric kind of set me straight on that and, and, and told me some, some really interesting facts about um, PU and PVC and how actually there is still animal products within uh, supply chains often in those cases. And what the Vegan Society do is sort of re-educate businesses to, to remove those animal products from their supply chain. So it was really fascinating. Um, Anik and Immaculate Vegan, obviously coming at it from a from in the same ballpark, but from a different element of the uh, of the fashion industry, rather than the trademark, sort of looking at the the business themselves, and and actually what I, I loved about um, Annex approach is it's so root to branch, as I as I kind of mentioned, it it covers all aspects of the kind of um, ethical nature of a business and their their, their credentials and. Um, just speaking to Annick for for the time that I, I was lucky enough to, it's really clear that her where her sort of ethics lie and her passions lie. So um, 
I think it's a really good conversation. I hope hope you enjoy it. Before I move any further, though, I should tell you about um, the sponsorship of this episode. Um, this episode is brought to you by Veg One uh, from the Vegan Society. The Vegan Society needs no introduction. The the oldest sort of formal organisation in the vegan game, as it were. Obviously, veganism in various forms has been around for for many years before that, but uh, the the term vegan. Uh, was coined by, I think his name was Donald Watson. Do correct me, folks at the Vegan Society. Um, back in 1944, he formed the Vegan Society. Um, and still to this day, it is often the the go-to for resource uh, resources, information, um, when folks are transitioning into a vegan lifestyle. Or even if they are you know, OGs in the game, the Vegan Society provide all kinds of information to help us uh, along our vegan paths. Um, one of the, the bits of information I got them for, from them um, and hence why I'm talking to you about Veg One is about the nutritional side of things. You know, when you when I transitioned into veganism, uh, I had to look around for for a multivitamin or vitamins in general. Uh, like many people, you know, you have that little worry about am I am I healthy? Am I, you know, am I? Everyone tells you it's not vegan that you're gonna you're gonna keel over from something, some kind of deficiency. So you start looking into it, and where did I look? But the Vegan Society, um, and lo and behold they had their own solution to that problem. So it's Veg1. Veg1 is obviously a nutritional vitamin and mineral supplement designed for vegans by vegans. Uh, Launched back in 2005, contains all of your EU nutrient reference values of uh, B12, D3, iodine, selenium, B2, B6 and folic acid. Uh, Many of those are the the ones that your your friends and family will tell you you're going to keel over from. So it's reassuring to know that they are, uh, they're all in Veg1 one and it's just £12.70 pretty affordable for six months worth of um, of veg one that you can take every day I think that's a pretty fair price to be fair um, I've said fair too many times there but I think it's pretty fair um, what I also think is pretty cool is that it's um, now plastic free they changed the packaging back in 2021 it always used to I hope they don't mind me saying this always used to irk me slightly that it was in a little plastic pot it's not anymore, which is great. It's in a little metal pot. Um, and the beauty of that is you can reuse it. As uh, as many of you will know if you listen to this show regularly, uh, you can reuse it to pop your colouring pencils in or your crayons. It's pretty great. Um, you can pop some screws and nails in your, in your garage or your shed, your workshop, or the place where you keep your screws and nails. There's all kinds of things you can do with it. Um, you could perhaps save some pennies that you find in there. There's there's a whole host of things that you can do with your Veg One pot after you've had all of those wonderful um, nutrient reference values. That's right, isn't it? All of those wonderful NRVs that you've had for the last six months um, of your B12s and your iodines and so on. So head over to Vegan Society, uh, look for Veg One, and you can get some there. There you go. This episode's brought to you by them. Anyway, let's get on with it, shall we? Without further ado, here's a conversation between me and Annick Island, the co-founder of Immaculate Vegan. What came first for you? Was it fashion, veganism as a passion point? Which one, which one was the former? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I've always been interested in fashion. I wouldn't describe myself as a, as a fashionista or anything. <laughs> I guess yeah, my, my path into vegan fashion was really my path into veganism, I think. Um, and then I think, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but 
it was really just that I felt that this was a really big gap that was kind of underexplored and underserved. Mm. I mean, probably if there was something else, like, you know, I might, I might have kind of gone into something else, not fashion. But yeah, for me, the, the, the vegan fashion element was something that I thought needed a lot of attention. Yeah, that's why I ended up focusing on it, I think. What was it that made you think it needed a lot of attention? Yeah, well, so <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if anyone else has had this experience, but so when I became vegan, I found the food side of it actually really easy. Um, I mean, this was about sort of yeah, six and a half years ago, and I live in London. You know, there's lots of there's lots of vegan food to be had everywhere, right? The supermarkets are full of it, so I didn't find that side hard. But one of the first things I started doing was thinking about, well, okay, I've got the food bit, but I know that there's a lot of non you know, non-vegan or animal exploitation rather that happens in fashions, you know, in terms of leather, wool, silk. So I started looking for the most obvious thing, which was vegan shoes um, and then Mm. vegan bags. And my first kind of, my first internet searches were just very dispiriting, really. I was finding stuff that was, (laughs) you know, very, very just sort of unfashiony, but, you know, made out of horrible materials, really unstylish. Um, Just, you know, just made me think, oh no, this is going to be, this is going to be really horrible (laughs) and really hard. Um, And, and then actually I I just thought this can't, you know, this can't be right. So I just spent, I started spending actually just a really long time digging into um, any brands I could find. I spent ages on Instagram, you know, going down that kind of rabbit hole where, you know, one thing takes you to another. And I basically found that there were actually lots of really lovely brands out there, but they were generally small uh, mm. and therefore, you know, not amazing at marketing themselves and not very well exposed, certainly, certainly compared to kind of non-vegan alternatives. Um, and so on the one hand, I was thinking, well, brilliant, that, you know, there absolutely is some great stuff out there. And that's good, not just for me, but I didn't want anyone to be put off, you know, trying to choose more mm. ethically and sustainably because they just thought it wasn't out there. But on the other side, I thought, you know, how how can I change that situation, essentially? Um so I started a blog on Instagram. This is while I was still working full time, you know, doing something else, um, really just with the sole aim of essentially sort of bringing together, curating and exposing the best of the vegan fashion that was out there. So I tried to make it very art directed, you know, very, I really focused on the aesthetics of it more than anything. Essentially, I was just yeah. trying to sort of show people, you know, you can love fashion, you can love really beautifully designed things and love engaging with beautiful, exciting brands. And you can do that and still be vegan and still be choosing vegan products as well. And I call that immaculate vegan. Um, and, and yeah, and, that, and that's kind of how it, how it all sort of started really from a, from an Instagram blog. Did it gain traction pretty quickly, that, that notion? Did you have to kind of educate folks into that, that world or did you just find there was actually this big audience who were kind of like thinking the yeah, same as you? it was a bit of both to be honest. So I think on the one hand, I found that there were I got followers really quickly because I found that there were a lot of vegans out there who, like me, were kind of really frustrated by, you know, people thinking, oh, just because you're vegan, you know, you don't care about fashion or it's just, it's just about choosing animal free, but it doesn't mean you also want really stylish things. So they were kind of like, you know, oh, hallelujah, this is amazing. You know, I had no idea these brands <laughs> existed. Um, so there was that on the one hand. Um, the other, I think, side that's definitely needed educating and that we still do, you know, a lot of now, you know, now that we're a sort of full e-commerce platform is showing people who maybe aren't necessarily vegan, but want to choose to shop more consciously just what vegan fashion right. is um, and the materials that are out there. And I think particularly this, the misconceptions that are out there around, well, it's either, you know, it's got to be plastic if it's not leather or somehow yeah. it's less sustainable if it's not animal leather. You know, they, they believe that animal leather is either sustainable or biodegradable or, you know, um, uh, a byproduct of, of the meat and dairy industry. 
So there are lots of myths that we have, we definitely come across and that we have to kind of keep educating people about, like, for, yeah, for sure. Can I ask you about a specific myth? Yeah. You mentioned it there, but and I don't want to, like, you know, don't test you <laughs> too much. So forgive me if I, if I am. Forgive me if I'm overstretching, but um, I definitely had that perception that, and I, and I won't name the brand, but there was a big high street brand, um, predominantly known for their women's fashion at, at quite a lower mm. end, uh, who had a had handbags and whatnot, and then suddenly they all had like the vegan trademark mm-hmm. on, and I was like, "Well, you've taken what you had before. You had like a plastic bag." <laughs> And you've stuck a logo on it. It's like a greenwashing kind yeah. of thing. And I was a little bit. I was. A bit, I actually. I spoke to somebody from the vegan society about this recently. From the, the the from the vegan trademark sort of department, and they said, "Well, no, it's not quite like that because actually they do have to still." There was a process where they were like spraying them with um, like an animal product, and we had to get them to stop doing that. So it is actually changed. So I thought, oh, well, that's that's kind of good at least. But still, there is this element of you've got that on one end, which is quite cheap. And then on the, which is nothing wrong with that at all, but it's, you know, it's one end. And then at the other end, you've got like Stella McCartney, which is incredible stuff and like handbags and stuff and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, you know, beautiful, but they're very, very expensive. Is there, is is that the choice? No, no, (laughs) no, not at all, at all. So I think firstly, yeah, just going back to your kind of, you know, can you just label something vegan if it's not leather? So yeah, one, no, you can't because there are other, non-vegan materials in sort of standard mainstream um, fashion lines and that's something definitely to be aware of so just because something for example is not leather it might have you know, animal glue is animal based glue is really really popular um, you know my insect based dyes I mean there is it's it's a minefield so it doesn't mean it's definitely vegan and I mean we have brands that have also got the vegan society certification and I know the hoops they've had to jump through to get that so I do know that that vegan society certification is really robust in terms of it being a vegan product, right? So no animal products in it. However, that doesn't mean it's sustainable. So one of the materials that you see a lot in kind of fast fashion brands is PVC. So PVC is is, is a plastic, um, but it's also very, it's very toxic plastic. So it produces a lot of chlorine when it's produced. You know, it's horrible for, for the workers that are involved in it. So that we have a PVC free policy. So that is kind of the worst of the kind of vegan leathers. Um, you know, it's often referred to as pleather. It's that kind of really shiny, you know, it doesn't feel nice, it doesn't look nice, but it's cheap. It's really cheap. Um, and that's why it's used quite a lot. Um, now then you have, because the world of vegan leather is massive, and there are actually so many different types of vegan leather. Um, many of them do contain some level of a plastic that's called polyurethane. But even that, again, it's a very complex issue. So you can have polyurethane that's oil-based, or you can have ones that are water-based, it can be produced to very sort of strict emission standards. Um, so, and actually it can be very, compa- when you're comparing it to animal leather, which is often what it's being used to replace, is actually way more sustainable. And there are independent bodies that do this benchmarking that look at the sustainability of fabrics used in fashion from cradle to grave. Um, the, the sort of, the, you know, the very um, common one or what, very reputable one that's used is called the Higgs Index. Um, and that shows that animal leather, out of all materials used in fashion, I think actually also Angora wool is one of them, they're the, they're the least sustainable fabrics. And nothing to do with animal welfare, just on sustainability, it's really bad. So things like where you've got PE or polyurethane that's in some vegan leathers, that is still better than animal leather from just a sustainability point of view. 
But then you get into the really exciting stuff, which is the plant-based leathers. And there are now leathers made of primarily, not not 100%, um, because you need some other materials that give them a bit of structure and durability. But you get apple leather, you've got cactus leather, um, you've got grape leather, you've got mushroom leather, you've got Pinatex, which is made out of pineapple leaves. So there is a wealth of these amazing new pl- primarily plant-based materials. Um, there's also, you know, quite a few of our brands use a cereal-based leather. So it's, a, so it's made from bio poly oils from cereal crops. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of innovation taking place in this area. There's a lot of investment going into it. And we also find that it's something that our audience and, well, and, and sort of, you know, citizens of all kinds, shoppers of all kinds are really interested in because not only are these materials really sustainable, they often make use of waste products as well. So apple leather, for example, makes use of um, apple waste from the apple juicing industry, which is massive. Um, But also they're just really exciting. You know, they're really, they're they're very technology driven. They're really sexy. They like the whole idea of them. So, you know, there's there's all, and there's many brands using those kind of materials now. Um, We have bags, for example, from 50 pound to 500 pound. So we're not on the Stella McCartney end at all in terms of price. I mean, that you're looking at £800 plus there for a new bag. Um, equally, we're not fast fashion. And, and I would say our sweet spot, like the most probably sold products, tend to be around £150 for shoes and bags. So they're not, you know, they're not inexpensive by any means, um, but they are really high quality. They're made from sustainable materials, sustainable manufacturing. But also, really importantly, we only work with brands that treat and pay their workers really fairly as well. And that is a crucial part of ethical consumption, right? Making sure that everyone in the supply chain is actually paid a living wage and treated well, which, which again, does not happen in fast fashion brands, unfortunately, or very rarely happens with fast fashion. So that's a long answer. But yeah, there's a lot of choice. There's that's a, a lot great of answer. <laughs> I, I'm, first of all, just bowled over by your, your knowledge of this. I'm not, not surprised, but just uh, it, it's, it's incredible that the depth... Uh, and very reassuring, you know, as a as a kind of consumer to know that there's that that level of thought gone into yeah. things. I, I, there's something on my mind though, which is if you'd said to me, like, I might have had the same thought process that you might have had at the beginning of this, as in, like, I've looked around, I can't find anything that's you know what I would want to wear apart from unless it's kind of accidentally vegan, yeah. so you know that that kind of market. That was probably where I was at, and anything that was in like a vegan range. I don't know. It just tended to not be not be the kind of thing I yeah. wanted to, to wear. But going from that to I'm going to tackle that problem myself is quite a, quite a <laughs> leap. Uh, what was that kind of process? <laughs> it might work. Well, it's a leap for me. It might not have been for yeah. you. I'm interested in your kind of like your journey into that. How how did you how did you get that that kind of gap covered? Yeah, if you like? I mean, I think you know it was lots of sort of fortuitous things. I think happening at the same time, really. So. You know, on the one hand, I'd already started this Instagram blog, and that was something that I was just able to do while I was working. So it wasn't a huge amount of time. Um, mm. it, you know, it was no kind of great sacrifice or anything. Um, and that and that just really took off. So I had I had sort of the privilege of being able to see that kind of growing, and I was getting you know yeah people giving me really good feedback, but also brands contacting me saying you know we love that you're featuring us. We we really you know we want a platform that shows us alongside brands that are like us, and also that really, right. you know, focus on high quality design and creativity. Um, so for them, it was really important to be in a kind of environment that showcased them, you know, in the best way. And they felt that was really lacking. Um, and, and, and as part of that was also some of, you know, some of that people could find, could both discover and also buy these new brands. So I kind of, I knew the demand was there anyway. Um, I was also, you know, we chatted about this before, you know, you were, you were saying about, you know, 
you know, it's time for you for career change during COVID. Well, I had that a few years just before COVID where, you know, I've been working all my, mm. all my kind of working life really in, for, you know, really large corporates. I, you know, I was working in marketing. Um, I was, you know, head, heading up the marketing for a, for a big media company. Um, and I'd kind of just sort of come to the end of that really. So I was very ripe for a career change. Um, and that, that sort of coincided with this taking off. And then, and I just basically just thought, you know, why not, why not just, you know, do that and I, I I knew I could also do some consulting when I gave up my job and that would kind of you know pay the mortgage while I had time to develop this into an idea <laughs> yeah. but the other really fortuitous thing that happened to me was that I was so yeah, my background is marketing so I definitely I knew I had some of the skills to make this work but I also knew there were loads of skills I didn't have um, and one of them was I'd never you know created and run an e-commerce site um, but very luckily for me a friend of mine put me in touch with someone who ran an e-commerce agency um, who I met with and I said, like, I've got this idea and, you know, I really want to, really want to develop it, but I don't really know what, what's actually involved in creating the website and the costs and all of that. And he said, this guy was called Simon. Um, he said, look, I think it's a brilliant idea. I also happen to be vegan. I'm looking for a new challenge. Why don't we do this together? And, and he became my co-founder, Simon. So I was very lucky in kind of finding him at the time and we able, we were able to do it together. And I think that's very important. I mean, I don't know, you know, how, how much you might maybe hear that from other business owners, but I think having somebody else to do it with, you know, complements and adds to your skills, your experience, but also just makes the whole thing a lot less scary. Um, And, you know, it's very motivating as well. So that was a really big part of it. I think that that was just, that was just luck really. (laughs) Were were brands kind of pretty open to you quite early? I mean, obviously you'd been working kind of, kind of alongside them anyway, through the Instagram and the the blog and so on. But so, so did that kind of give you a ready-made yeah, pool of contacts? Yeah, exactly. That I mean, that really helped because yeah, already I had a group of people to go to and you know and say, look, we're now going to take this further. What do you think? Do you want to get on board? Um, and they were really happy to. They already knew me. They kind of knew the kind of thing it would look like because they knew what the Instagram looked like. Um, and so there was already a level of trust, I guess, there. And that, of course, once you've got the first tranche, then it's easier to go out and get other people because you can say, look, we've already got these guys signed up. Do you like to board mm, as well? Mm. So all of all of that was massively helpful, I think. Yeah. So so it, it was all kind of it was a gradual process. You know, it wasn't just I went from nothing to to that. I think that would have been really hard and much scarier. Um, but yeah, that that had really helped. I'm I'm amazed by the like logistics of it all as well because there's there's brands all all over the mm. place that you've firstly like you've discovered, which is kind of incredible in the first place. Like brands I'd not heard of, and then thought, why have I not heard yeah. of this brand? Yeah. <laughs> like what they're doing is incredible but they're all over the place like you know before we started recording we were talking about a particular pair of trainers which well i'll, I'll show them they're here so, <laughs> for the video, for the, which literally arrived at the at the time that we that we were just about to record um and i think they came from yeah. france they were, they were shipped over from france um and, and of course when i saw that on the on the the uh the notification i thought oh my goodness this is going to be this is going to be a wait you know, with the, the Brexit and so on, but they turned up like two days, three yeah, days later, or whatever. It's incredible. Pretty good. It's pretty good getting things. Yeah. It's amazing, um, but but it did make me think, like logistically, like how how have you how have you squared all of that? Because yeah. that that's it's not quite as straightforward as like you know, let's ship everything to one central place and sell it all in a shop, yeah. and if it's there, it's there, and if it's not, it's not. You've got to work with their kind of supply chains yeah. and so on. <laughs> Talk to me about all of that. That's not even a question. That's it's amusing. Because somebody said, our, our web development agency actually said to us recently, like, you know, you do realise you picked basically the most complex retail model you, you could have picked. 
from an operational point of view, not for my customers, it's great. They have access to all these amazing brands. They get them shipped directly to them. Happy days for them. For us to manage is really complex. Uh, It is. I have to say, I massively underestimated operational work of running a business like ours. It is a lot. And it is complex. And we have to understand all kinds of things from how shipping works to cross-border taxes, import taxes, like all kinds of really horrible things. Um, I mean, we really, really focus on UK brands and US brands, which makes it a bit simpler. Um, And because those are are where our two biggest audiences are by far. Um, But there are some amazing brands like the one you bought your trainers from, you know, that are based outside of that. You know, we have quite a few in France or Germany or Spain. Um, who just have really amazing products, you know, and, and they just look great and we know people really love them. Um, and so we want to work with brands like that as well. So we do we do work hard to make sure that ultimately our job is to present our customers with the best the best vegan brands that are out there. And unfortunately, that doesn't always mean they're going to be based in the UK or based in the US. Because, um, mm. yeah, you know, at the moment, while there are more vegan brands launching all the time, which is brilliant, um, there still isn't as much choice as we'd ideally want just, you know, just to be able to buy locally, I think. Um, maybe one day that will come because also it's obviously great buying locally because you often get free or you know low cost shipping and obviously it's more sustainable but I think right now as a vegan you know buying vegan products um, it's not always that easy so so yes it it is operationally quite tricky to run the business (laughs) and there's a trade-off with with everything isn't there you you get you get one aspect covered like ethically you know either it's you know the people who are at the at the end of the kind of supply chain of it who are getting paid properly or you get the right material but then it has to come from such and such a place so it's just a kind of a reality of the world until you know people like yourself almost are creating more of more of this more platforms for it and so on and then i guess it it starts to become something that others might think oh do you know what i might start that business i've always wanted to start making trainers in yorkshire or something you know like have you had much of that yet? I appreciate it's probably like that is a longer yeah. process. But have you had many kind of businesses who you've seen at the very, very early yeah. stages who are sort of wanting to yes, talk to Yes, actually, we really have in the last year or so. And that's been really exciting. I mean, our ultimate aim is as a platform, we want to be have a really strong collection of brands and products in every kind of category and in every region around the world. So we want people to, you know, we want you, for example, as a UK consumers, to be able to go, right, I want whether, you know, whether you want some new pants or some new trainers um or you know some new skincare whatever it is to be able to buy that in the uk and that would be great but right now that isn't the case in every category but we are definitely seeing we've had a few brands that have come to us saying i'm just thinking about bringing out this new trainers brand you know i'm based in cardiff or wherever um, actually mm. this is you know this is what happened was one of them because also the, i mean the other really exciting thing is we have a tradition in the UK of great shoemaking, but that's disappeared because we now don't have the factories anymore. And so there are people who are looking mm. at both bringing back some of those industries, which is amazing, and also doing it ethically and sustainably. And yeah, they want to know from us, you know, what, what are you seeing in terms of the market? What styles are doing well? You know, where do you think the gaps are? Um, and we love giving that information because that's exactly what we want. We want brands like that to, yeah. to launch and, and do all that good stuff, you know, made in the UK, paying workers fairly. So I think that's definitely happening. Um, I mean, you know, the key thing I think is making sure they have access to funding because that's often the hardest thing for a new business. Um, you know, whether, whether you're a business mm. like us that's selling or whether you're manufacturing, you need access to funding to be able to turn your idea into a reality. Um, so, I, you know, I hope they're able to get the funding. Um, but there are definitely people out there with, with definitely, you know, passionate ideas um, about what they want to produce and, and doing it locally, yeah. 
This is a bit of a crystal ball thought stroke question. So f- forgive me asking you to predict the future, but um, and I'm not, you know, not particularly a, a, a fan of the, <laughs> of Brexit in many ways. Um, but I, I, I just wonder, just as you were saying that there, do you think uh, uh, a, a consequence of Brexit in the longer term may be that that folks uh, in the UK who are looking to start these these businesses f- feel more buoyed to do so? Uh, perhaps there, that we see more of that for whatever reason. Do you do you think we will see industry kind of turning inward yeah. a little bit more? Um, yes, I think so. I don't know if it's a consequence of Brexit necessarily. I mean, all I see is all the nightmares. <laughs> yeah, me, me, me too. Just to just to yeah. put my cards it's, on the table. <laughs> lovely, if that's a silver lining. I kind of feel that would be happening independent of Brexit, and the reason I think that is because I think the drivers behind that is actually. I think it's a bigger drive that's happening in lots of places, or certainly lots of developed economies around the world, um, around um, local local purchasing, local sourcing. That's really around the demand, I think, for increased sustainability and ethics. I think it's more around that, for example. Right. Um, so you know, we have we have a our you know one of our best-selling bag brands. They're called Frida Rome. And they use cactus leather. Cactus leather is made in in uh, Mexico, but everything else they do in the UK. So so they hand make their bags in Manchester, you know, with the really, you know, skilled, skilled workers who are being, you know, paid and treated really well, they're part of the family. That kind of model, I think, is becoming really popular, but not just in the UK. We see it in Spain and Germany and Italy with the brands that manufacture there as well. And I think it's just this recognition of people want, you know, slow fashion that's made well, that's Mm -hmm. made to last, that's made by people that are skilled and care about the product and and are themselves treated well and, you know, and equably, and I think it's it's the growth of that more than anything. I think, and and the, yeah, the UK is seeing that as well. From a marketing point of view, is that is that one of the biggest challenges for you? In so far as um, my, my thought process here is that the sustainable message and the vegan message, obviously, they they kind of have gone hand yeah. in hand for some time. Yeah. However, there is also this kind of like challenge, I think, around the quality message. We did talk a little bit about this this kind of earlier, but I just want to talk about it more squarely from a marketing point of view, from from your point of view, and overcoming the objections from the perhaps the non-vegan crowd. Yeah. You're looking for something sustainable, but you also want luxury, and you have that kind of like uh, to and fro going on in your mind. Is that is that one of your biggest challenges to help people overcome those things and, and help them see that? A cactus leather, a pineapple leather, an apple leather, whatever it is, that is that's modern luxury. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it is um, to some extent. I mean, part of the challenge is that a lot of people have never seen or you know they've never felt these materials. They don't know what they what they feel like. You can obviously show yeah. them pictures, but everyone knows what animal leather looks like and feels like. Mm. So I think part of that is just the exposure. You know, if you've never seen it before, you don't necessarily know that it's going to feel really beautiful or you know look really beautiful in the, you know in the in the flesh, as it were. Um, so that I think that I think is part of the challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, animal leathers had thousands of years to kind of build, you know, for its marketing campaign, hasn't it? In terms of yeah, um, being seen as the most luxurious material, I think that's changing now. I think the sort of the truth about it is coming out. Um, we do quite mm. a lot of, you know, we have a lot of content on this. We've just recently published one on um, the leather industry's greenwashing debunked, which talks a lot about some of those things around, particularly you know, the idea that it's biodegradable. It's not. Um, you know, if it was biodegradable, you know, animal skin is biodegradable, but it would rot on your feet. It has to go through a tanning process, which is adding where you add loads and loads of chemicals to it, right. and that's what makes it non-biodegradable, i.e. it lasts. So if it wasn't for durable, yeah. it's very hard for it to be biodegradable at the same time. Um, but again, like, there, are, there are lots of these, you know, 
big myths out there around that or, or that it's a byproduct that's another thing and it's therefore sustainable in some way um so yeah we, we we have to we definitely have to do a lot of work in you know encountering those but on the other hand as i said i think because some of these the fruit-based leathers and the sort of the plant-based leathers are seen as quite sexy and innovative that's helping to position them in within the luxury market as well and then it does really help that you've got brands like Karl Lagerfeld and Stella McCartney and Elmes that are starting to use them as well. Um, although Elmes did a you know mushroom leather and calfskin yeah. bag, which is a bit odd. I don't know who they thought that was for, but you know. And anyway, <laughs> you know, at least they're using mushroom leather. Karl Lagerfeld is using cactus leather. You know, so so the fact that when you when people see luxury brands are using them, I think it automatically gives them a yeah. you know, oh okay, they must be good quality then, right? They must be they must be a certain level. Yeah. I mean, this this sort of thought question doesn't necessarily apply to immaculate vegan because uh, you you obviously have brands who are who are th- much more holistically sort of ethical and vegan yeah. and so on. But um, I have a, a thought on that, or a question on that, really that I'd just like to pick your brains on. You mentioned there, you know, big big kind of fashion houses who are using um, turning to uh, vegan vegan leather products and so on and so forth, but simultaneously if you use them as an example, simultaneously opening up a crocodile yeah. farm in one place and then selling mushroom leather in another. There was a really big, um, I won't say the name because I can't remember it. It's between two and I can't remember which one. You'll probably know exactly which one it was. Actually, I know exactly which one it was now. It was Mulberry, I'm going to say it. But uh, a while back, Mulberry did a handbag and it was... I saw it everywhere. It was kind of like Mulberry does their first sustainable handbag. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's read up on it. And I read up on it and it was like a calf skin. Like, so in there it was like, you know, bovine leather. And I was kind of like, hold on a minute. Like you've instantly lost that there. So there's like yeah. a, a greenwash marketing thing there. In your view, like are these... Is there a genuine, from what you've seen, and I appreciate you're, you're dealing with more ethical brands... Um, from what you've seen, is there a genuine desire to shift towards these things, or are some of these big businesses, in your in your view, um, actually just seeing it as there's a market over there that we can have a bit of? So we'll have that alongside yeah. our. Um, I, I ask because I sometimes see in the sort of quote unquote vegan community, the vegan media, etc., these things being held up as progress. Yeah. You know, this company's done this, isn't it great? And then somebody else pointing out, you see the comments underneath, and everyone's like, "Yeah, but what about this, 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 and this, and this?" So I just wanted to get your view yeah, on it. Sorry for rambling. To go, where, to go where the vegan dollar is, um, I think it's both, honestly. So, and you know, we, we've we've been having chats with some kind of bigger brands that want to sell on us and have vegan collections. And what we what we see is, I think there are definitely brands that are doing this because they see that the consumer demand is there. Um, and they want to be part of that, right? So it might be Elmes mm. or Karl Lagerfeld or whoever. But you know, these, these brands that are yeah. clearly doing lots of awful things as well, you sort of think, well, they can't, they can't, you know, um, they can't be that unhappy with the status quo if they're still doing mainly that. Um, yeah. So I think there's definitely, you know, so the good thing is that consumer demand is going in this area, and if people are seeing that, brilliant, because it means actually things are changing. On the other hand, some of the people that I've spoken to have made it really clear to me that within some of those big brands. While there might be a lot of people that are just, you know, only care about making money, there are also some really passionate people um, that really mm. care about trying to change the way the industry is. And they want to do that from within. And that's why I think there's both. And, I, and you know, ultimately, I don't think we're going to get the change we want unless we see big brands changing. So while I obviously want mm. to massively support all the small, amazing brands that we have, 
um, I really want the big brands to change as well, because in the same way that I want, you know, all the big food brands to have more vegan collections, I want McDonald's to have a vegan collection, because until you do that, you're not going to change the way the majority of people eat or the way the majority of people shop. And so you're not really going to change, you know, life for animals and people and, you know, the impact on the planet, because that, which is what we all want, right? Um, mm. So I'm all, I'm all for that kind of happening. Um, having said that, I, I almost, in a way, I don't care what the intention is. I care what they're doing. And so I would go back right. to just looking at what are they actually doing. Um, if they're producing things from vegan materials, brilliant. Um, but are they being produced, are they being manufactured in a sustainable way? So, for example, you know, are they using factories that use closed-loop technology where everything's recycled? Are they making sure that there are no toxins being released into the atmosphere? Are they using solar energy? You know, do they have carbon neutral, carbon positive kind of practices? You know, the answer to that in most cases is going to be no. Um, you know, what's their ethical labour policy? Do they understand what their whole supply chain looks like? And are they making sure that everyone's being treated and paid fairly? In most cases, even for luxury brands, it's a big no. Um, and are they using sustainable packaging? So we we try and look at all those different elements, make sure that our brands mm. are doing all of those. If big brands are doing all of those things, I'm like, I don't, I don't even care what the reason is. <laughs> I just care they're doing it. But yeah. I also know they're not doing it. And it's and that's when you kind of can sort of see what the intention is. If the intention is really just to try and go after the vegan marketing do- or the vegan dollar, then they're just doing the most obvious stuff, which is look at the material, it's vegan, right. and they're not, doing anything about the rest of it and i think as you know as consumers that's what we should all be asking those big brands to do you know um you, you know it's like the the fashion revolution campaign which is who made my clothes that's so important so you know asking big brands or even saying i love the fact that you've done that but what about this and i'm not going to get behind you until you deal with all of this stuff that's that's really powerful yeah i i think folks find it like incredibly difficult to get beyond like the the sort of PR speak of these companies. You know, I've looked on loads of these websites when I've seen one of these vegan ranges and I've read something and I thought, oh, that sounds quite good. And then you get to a line and you think, oh, that I don't really know what that means. Yeah. Almost, It's almost like deliberately obfuscating. Lots of greenwashing. And, I, you know, I mean, particularly around, this has been sort of publicised recently by campaigns like the Clean Clothes campaign and Labour Behind the Label and people like that that really look at ethical labour. And a lot of these brands are talking about their vegan collections and about empowering women, um, and yet they're not paying their mm. female workers who are based in Bangladesh or Pakistan, you know, um, e- even a even a living wage, or then you know they're they're not paying for items that were made during COVID that they no longer want. So there's this massive discrepancy between what they're saying and their marketing spin and what they're actually doing, and and that's why I mean it makes it really hard, doesn't it? As consumers, we have to you mm. have to constantly be questioning stuff. You know, you can't just walk past a nice billboard and go oh that's great they're doing some really great things you have to kind of go but are they what are they doing here and who's making it and just yeah just because it's made of cactus leather does that really mean it's ethical uh is there somebody else that's doing it more ethically so it does put more responsibility on it on like you know on us as consumers i think to, to question um but I, I think we have to if we don't want to be duped we want to make sure we're making yeah. the best choices or, or at least, like you know, the, I suppose the, the one of the the beauties of having something like Immaculate Vegan is that you have a element of trust in. Yeah. Well, they've done that work. We have done that work for you. I mean, that's what <laughs> you know. You don't only have to trust to us, but but exactly, you know, go to people that yeah. you know have done that work. Um, who, yeah, I mean, there are other multi-brand retailers that you know. Um, that do look at things around sustainability and ethics as well. I mean, one thing I would say is there are also lots of people that label themselves sustainable retailers. 
and yet they sell wool and silk um, and leather, <laughs> mainly. They call it ethical yeah. leather. For me, that's not sustainable. It certainly isn't ethical. So I guess there's that to kind of be wary of as well. But as long as you find a retailer that you feel matches your values, um, then that's a, that's a good shortcut to then kind of going, okay, well, at least they've done that work and they're bringing me brands that I, that I know have been vetted already. What does that vetting process even even how does it even begin? Was yeah. it like for for you? Folks? Yeah, I mean, so we we tend to look at four areas. We look at materials, and obviously they have to be vegan, but also sustainable. We look at manufacturing, we look at labour, and we look at packaging, and they're the kind of four areas that we really drill brands on. But really, in, in a way that make, what makes it easier for us is because we do tend to work with independent smaller brands. They know their supply chains really really well. You know, they're they're not they're not very big. Um, so right. it's easy for them to trace everything. You know, they know exactly who's making their products because it's a studio down the road from them. And they, and they you know, they, and they know their workers or some of the bigger ones who do have bigger factories, but they, you know, they visit those factories regularly. So again, they can see everything that's happening on the shop floor. Whereas really big high street brands just don't have that. They've got such complicated, vast supply chains. They don't even necessarily know what's, what's happening in, in all of them. So often it's not mm. even a case that they, they are, you know, they don't want to do better things. It's just very hard for them to get the transparency or to invest enough work anyway in getting that transparency. So for our brands, it's much easier. Um, and often you can tell how genuine a brand is by just how open and transparent they are about talking to you. So yeah. again, you know, with, with us, I can I can kind of, I've now, having talked to so many brands, I can kind of quite instantly see where they're kind of kosher because they just talk so effortlessly and so passionately about yeah. who's making their products, what they're made from, you know. They talk to their... You know, they're, they're in direct contact and have relationships with suppliers of all their materials. They've tried them all out. Um, you know, they've been comparing the relative sustainability of all these different vegan leathers against each other and what's better and what's stronger and all that kind of stuff. So they just have so much first-hand knowledge of what's happening. And, and that then is very easy for us to see as well. And that, and that is, I think, the challenge that really big high street brands have about getting that transparency and closeness to everything that's happening. Is it, from what you've seen... Is it even possible, and this might be a naive question, it probably is, so forgive <laughs> it, so, um, but is it even possible to scale like, yeah. and, and stay ethical? I mean, I guess, well, it sort of depends in a way what you mean by ethical, doesn't it, and sustainable, because it's not... Yeah, true. They're sort of, you know, one person's ethics might be, like somebody might think, you know, true. you can have ethical leather. Uh, I don't, but... So, so it kind of depends on, I think, your definitions. I think, in general, yes, I think it's harder. It's harder the further away you come you come from your supply chain as, as a brand to know what's happening. Um, I mean, one other area that's definitely a, an issue now is with the vegan leathers is actually around supply because a lot of these businesses just can't keep up with the demand. And so as soon as they get one really massive client, let's say a car brand wants to use, you know, one of their vegan leathers for the interior of their cars, it's a big brand, that's wiped out the supply. So a challenge for a lot of these, those kind of the materials companies is actually for them to scale quickly enough to be able to meet the supply um, demand. Um, and and so that, yeah, that, that's another issue. I mean, another issue is around, you know, factories. So, I, you know, I know I, I'm aware of factories um, in India and China, for example, that are actually done on a really sustainable model. But one challenge they have is if they want to grow, do they just grow the factory size, which then it becomes much harder to make sure that all those really strict um, policies they have around ethical labour in place. And instead, they're choosing to no, not do that. They believe you can only you should only get to a certain size for it to feel like a community and a family still. And actually, what, you, what they're doing instead is just opening a different factory somewhere else. But they really want to keep that smaller, 
community family feel because that's really important so there are things that you can I think do to get around it but it's definitely it's a challenge and I think yeah I don't think you can necessarily adopt the things that really big um fast or traditional traditional fashion brands have done and doing that in the same way because that that may that Mm. that will bring real challenges into into that yeah making sure that things are as good as they can be at least How's uh, COVID impacted things over at Immaculate Vegan? Has it been been particularly challenging for you? Like no, not really well. Yes and no. I mean, I think initially, <laughs> certainly, we were hit in general, like everyone was, by just there was a huge amount of uncertainty. Um, and so for a, you know, for a time, it was just people stopped buying anything. But quite quickly, that ended for us. And I think the really positive side of it has been that, that it's just shone an even stronger light on the relationship between, you know, what we do, what we buy, and what happens in our environment. Mm. Um, you know, one of the, I guess, le- lessons behind COVID is just that, you know, if we if we damage our environment, if we um, have processes and practices in place that mean there's a very strong link between, you know, wild animals and farmed animals, for example, that creates the ideal breeding ground, or, you know, or wild animals and people, it creates an ideal breeding ground for diseases, for example, pathogens. So um, there's been a lot of, I think, exposure around that. Obviously, the climate crisis, I think, has had a big light shone on it as well, even more so. All of that has really helped us because ultimately it means that we're seeing more people who are interested in moving away from the status quo and and shopping more ethically and sustainably. Um, so that so that's been a yeah a really that has been a big silver lining I think with COVID for us. And hopefully that will that will still continue now that you know maybe COVID isn't such a um, you know horrendous issue as it was earlier. I really hope so. I, I always worry with that that there's it felt like there was a lot of. Um reflection going on at the beginning and pausing and thinking and connections being made certainly in the circles that I was perhaps moving in so maybe it was a bit of an echo chamber I'm not sure but um, I'm always conscious of what what I could label as progress Um, but I I do see that sort of waning a little bit with excitement to get back to normal life so I I kind of hope that we um yeah, we we do hang on to some of that. I, mean, I, really I think do. with the climate Especially crisis, I think that that's the side. That I, th- I think pretty much no one mm. now, apart from maybe a few crazies in the world, um, can, can deny there's something <laughs> serious going on with climate change, right? And the reality is that we're seeing it. Every, you know, we're seeing it all the time. We're seeing it in terms of you know extreme weather effects that are now no longer rare. Um, you know, unfortunately, some parts of the world are suffering from that. You know, a lot more than others. Um, mm. So I think it's just becoming more and more present, and, and that hopefully will will mean there's increased urgency that doesn't go away around around this i think joe what i haven't we haven't actually talked about which is completely my fault so i got very excited about talking about fashion and immaculate <laughs> vegan and so on but it's um your actual personal journey oh, yeah. into the world of veganism what 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 started mm. you off my dog <laughs> my dog started <laughs> so about um i think about 10 years ago now i got a rescue greyhound um, and that was my first sort of animal that I'd had as an adult. I'd sort of grown up with pets, but yeah, hadn't, hadn't, hadn't had a pet as an adult at all. Um, and I mean, I don't know if you've come across greyhounds at all, but they're quite, they're very sensitive. They're quite vulnerable dogs, right? They've had a horrendous time in the, in the racing mm. industry. Um, so they come to you very sensitive. I mean, they're, they're, they're the most amazing dog, by the way. Anyone who wants a dog, get a greyhound. Uh, they're incredibly affectionate. Um, you know, they're great, you know, just great, great, great pets. But um you're very aware of just how vulnerable they are and, and what's going to happen to them. And that, for me, just somehow, there was a bit of a light bulb moment, I think, where I sort of, I, you know, I love my dog so much and I would have hated for any anyone to harm her or to do anything to her 
And she just made me realise that, well, if I wouldn't, if I felt that way about her, she's just the same as all animals, you know. And I'd feel the same way about a cow or a goat or a pig or a chicken if I'd had that contact with them. Um, and so that, yeah, that for me was a light bulb moment that made me think if I would, you know, if I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to her, how on earth could I therefore do things that would harm animals in the same way when I know they're, you know, sentient beings that are capable of joy and capable of suffering and all, and all that kind of stuff. So that made me go vegetarian. Um, and then I think that for me was very much the gateway to veganism because I think, and I think like, mm. I think like a lot of people do this as well, which is when you're part of the problem, you don't want to inform yourself about it because no one wants to feel bad about the decisions they're making every day, you know? Whereas as yeah. soon as I wasn't part of the problem, I was very, or part of, you know, what I saw was a problem, which was eating meat anyway. Um, yeah. I was able to look at the videos and, you know, all the footage that was out there about actually what happened in the dairy industry, which I don't think I'd, let, I'd have let myself look at before. And it was, you know, it's out there. If anyone mm. wants to know it, it's, it's easy to see, isn't it? But you just don't want to because it is so horrific. And then yeah. once I yeah. saw that, then it was kind of like, oh, my God, uh, I can't. How can I be part of this? You know, I absolutely can't. So then it was a kind of much easier transition. And then I pretty much went, you know, I kind of, I would say go vegan overnight, but actually I think I'd already given up. I'd swapped out milks and I'd swapped out yogurt and things like that. So it was just kind of cheese and eggs at that point. And that didn't feel like a big deal then at all. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's my journey. I've never looked back. Did everyone in your circle go no. with you? What did, what did people, what did, no. what did people that were close to well, you make of it? Yeah. Actually my mum who's in her eighties is now almost vegan. So I'm very, very proud of her. That's amazing. And she's seen amazing benefits like her arthritis has almost gone and she feels you know, much, much wow. better. So that, that's very, very exciting. Um, I've definitely had friends and actually I've got a cousin that's gone vegan. So maybe I was a bit of an influence there. Um, I mean, I live, I live with a non-vegan. So my, you know, my partner, he eats meat and, dairy and everything and I yeah so no yeah. unfortunately uh I'm still I'm still <laughs> surrounded by some non-vegans as well how's living with non-vegans I've not done it for a long time quite hard yeah you have to just really try very hard not to you have to get, not get into the preachy thing at all right because that just makes people want to run a million miles <laughs> and, and do the opposite um which, you know, as a, as a brand, Immaculate Vegan, that is very much one of our values. You know, we firmly believe that to get people over <laughs> to vegan fashion, it's about being yeah. 100% non-preachy, just giving people information, but most importantly, just giving them amazing alternatives they want to swap. Um, but as a, so, and I find that really easy from a work perspective. From a sort of personal <laughs> perspective, it's much harder, you know, yeah. watching somebody, yeah. Yeah, you know, make a bacon sandwich. And you're like, oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I'll, I'll um I'll ask you for a bit of that that advice actually if that's all yeah. right just about from a from a, as you know as somebody with massive marketing experience uh, and also you know somebody who's a founder of an incredible brand like like Immaculate Vegan who who manages to strike the balance in the tone in which you present information without it coming across preachy like what are the key sort of you know tenets to being able to do that I, I personally find that quite difficult yeah. to to toe that line? I mean, I think, I think fundamentally for me, the reason I believe that is, is I think it's just grounded in, you know, certainly my understanding, which I, I think I've developed as a marketeer and just somebody that's interested in this and in how we make decisions and how our brains work, right? We've, we've evolved essentially to, one, not to really take risks or to make changes as often as we can because, you know, the well-trodden path is the safe path. So I think if you're trying to get mm. somebody to change their behaviour in, in any kind of way, you know, whether that's changing the brand, 
they use, which often, yeah, it's a key job of marketeers the world over, um, or getting people mm. to look at ethical and sustainable alternatives. What you have to remember is that um, intrinsically, we are going to underestimate the benefits of changing and overestimate the risks, and, that, and that's just what our brains do. So what we have to do is we have to sort of then counter that bias with the opposite. We have to underplay the risks, i.e., you know, it's so easy, it's not difficult, um, you're going to have no problems, you know. So making things, making it look as easy as it can, um, and that's whether you're trying to get people to try vegan food or vegan bags or whatever it is. Um, and, and then I think, you know, really amplifying the positives. And so we, I think that kind of knowledge of, well, this is just human behavior, this is just how brains work, helps us when we think about what, what's our strategy, right? So, so again, what we do is we absolutely give people information, um, but we try and do that in a very, you know, not an, an unemotive or certainly a non-judgment way, right? Um, there is yeah. this problem, not you're the problem. Um, and But also what we really highlight more than anything is, here's the solution. You can be part of it. It's actually really easy. It's really enjoyable. Look at this amazing stuff. Doesn't it look gorgeous? Mm. Um, and, and really amplify that. And that, I think, is is the most effective way, I think, of getting people to change. I mean, this is not, you know, nothing against. There are lots of amazing activists that do amazing work, at, at, you know, talking about the problem. And I think you need that as well. But you also do need people that really focus on the, on the positive side of changing because that ultimately, I think, has a stronger effect on people. Yeah, so vegans in every area, being vegans, doing their thing, I think is is much needed. Yeah. You know, like if we sort of marginalise ourselves, we can't really expect it to, to no, grow. I mean, you're only gonna you're gonna change if you see people that you think are like you that you empathise with, yeah. doing what you are, you know, doing what you're asking them to do. And therefore, I think that's it. We can't, you know, if we if we appear like people that are different to everyone else or pure in some way or better, that's just, a, that's a massive turnoff. Um, you know, we've all seen those kind of stereotypes, haven't we, of vegans that just go on about being vegan all the time and, you know, um, you know yeah. how evil you are if you have a bacon sandwich or whatever it is. And, you know, as, as tempting as it is to do that, and I know it's really hard, um, it just, I think it doesn't work. It really just, it's, it's not very effective anyway in general um, or certainly not as a, you know, as a solitary tactic. It's not, it's not very effective. And I think in the modern world, to your point about, you know, when you're walking down the high street, you've got to think about the decisions that you're making. It's very difficult to to not be in a glass house of some description, you know, even if you are vegan, even if you are, yeah. you know, thinking you're doing everything. There's there's, there's something that someone can point at. So it's totally. difficult to to take that, that very. position. I and, think. you know, most of us, the vast majority of us were non-vegan for a very, very long time. And we weren't non-vegan because we had mm. no knowledge or that knowledge wasn't there to be found. Um, I mean, for me, certainly, I know it was. I just, I, you know, for some reason, that sometimes even yeah. incomprehensible thing, I chose not to. Um, and so just because I'm the other side of that doesn't mean I shouldn't have, you know, that 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 for me is the link to empathy, right? You, you know it yourself. So you should have empathy with who you were. Um, and therefore, that should allow you to have yeah. empathy with all those other people out there that are, you know, many of which are very, very good people and want to do good things most of the time, but for some reason, just find it hard to make that switch. The point you make about you know our, our our brains are almost kind of wired to um, not look for for the the kind of change in things sometimes and to um, you know if we kind of deep down know we're doing something that's that's not that's not right to not look into it you know it takes yeah. me back to like when I used to smoke you know and and there was all the information was out there I've been out there for a long yeah, long time. <laughs> um, 
and and I didn't I ch- I pur- oh, but purposefully chose not to look at those. I mean, even to the point I remember when they put the uh, they first put the pictures on the cigarette packets and the the lettering and and sort of just almost purposefully yeah, avoiding it. it, it all. That's right in front of you, right? And if somebody told me not yeah. to smoke or why it was, if that, somebody told me why it was bad for me, all it would make me want to do was to smoke even more vociferously, you know. <laughs> Because there's that as well, isn't there? You don't like being told you shouldn't do something. Yeah, yeah, especially not if it's um, if there's an ethical judgment to it. I think yeah, us as humans really struggle with that concept when somebody tells us we are ethically Absolutely. making a poor decision. It's really it really strikes at our yeah, core. It, it doesn't really it? does. Yeah, I mean, no one make, wants to feel that they are a bad person. No one wants to feel they're making bad decisions, and that's why I think it's it's much more generally effective to talk about the problem that's there rather than it being with the person. We talk about, you know, the leather mm. industry and what effect that has. We don't say, you know, you as, an ethical, you as a consumer are doing this um, because that that just feels like an attack and people's natural instinct when they feel like they're being attacked is to either attack back or to walk away. But it's not to engage, right? Mm. That, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, you know, that is the last instinct if you're being attacked to try and engage with an open mind. And that's what we want people to do. We want people to engage with an open mind. So you kind of have to think, what you know? What can I do that's going to have the best, the highest chance of somebody engaging with me with an open mind? Love that. I can't think of a better place to, to start <laughs> to wrap up. But uh, th- th- I really do appreciate your time, Alec. It's been amazing chatting with you. I've, I've learned a lot and um, and and feel uh, super super excited to get <laughs> on uh, on immaculate well, vegan. Uh, or, well, or do some more shopping, very well. I should say. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. They're uh, yeah, they're not far off bloody vegans' colours as well. Oh, so there you go. Uh, yeah, which is which is wonderful. Uh, but it would be remiss of us not to tell folks where to to go about finding Immaculate Vegan. So whereabouts would would of folks course. find you? So we you? are immaculatevegan all one word dot com. That's our website. Um, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and YouTube uh, at Immaculate Vegan all one word. Awesome stuff. Well, there'll be links in all the show notes, so uh, do head to the show notes, and you can find all of those, uh, all of those things that amazing. Just and mentioned. if you sign up to our newsletter, you get ten percent off as well. There you go. Look at that bonus, bonus. Well, we'll definitely put that in the show notes as well, like saving people some money too. So, thanks so much, Alan. It's Thank been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure too. Cheers. This is a Bloody Vegans production.